This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots as well as free returns and exchanges and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Knives, machetes, saws, and shears, multi-tools, shovels, swords, axes, spears, hatchets, and tomahawks. If it cuts, snips, slices, or chops, Midway USA has it. Find great gift ideas in our huge selection of pocket knives and other everyday carry folding knives. Make a statement or create a family legacy with one of our top-of-the-line hunting knives. We've got a great selection of manual and electric sharpeners, too. For just about everything for the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the Habitat Podcast, the podcast for becoming better habitat managers. Guys, we are here to learn from all the experts out there, regular Joes, doing the best we can with the stuff we got, and uh, we have a great episode today. Brian, my co-host, is on the line. What's up, buddy? How are you, sir? I'm doing great, man. I am fired up. We've got an exciting episode, you know, pumped about all of our listeners. Thank the listeners for coming back. Thank you, guys. And I'm just, I'm excited, man. It's Friday. What's going on with you? You're uh, you're over there in God's country. Yeah, sitting here under the overhang of my cabin looking out on nothing but fields and woodlots, northeast Ohio, beautiful morning, sun shining, birds are chirping, can't complain at all. Oh, man, I have the same view, except it's more of like a basement view. <laughs> now I can hear the birds chirping in the background. and Oh, man, what you doing up there? Well, this is probably the longest stretch of dry weather we've had all year. So I'm hopeful to get uh, the last half of my plots planted today. I got some mowing done yesterday, some spraying, took care of... Uh, couple of things I had to get done up so hoping that everything stays on track and I'll get those backfields planted and be finished. Yeah, you said you were working till like nine thirty last night, right? Yeah. Yeah, it stayed light till almost nine thirty and I've got headlights on the tractor. I've done that before, but it, it hasn't gotten that desperate yet. But uh yeah, it was great to have the the sun around that long and sure we're able to cram in a lot more work. 
Nice job. And what do you have going on the rest of the weekend up there? You got some friends coming up? Yeah, Dave and Chris, who you've met at the ATA, and I've uh, been BSing with on social media and whatnot. They'll be up here probably in about uh, five, six hours after they get done working, and we'll be able to have a little more muscle to get a few more things accomplished. That's awesome, man. Nice job. You're you're busting your ASS out there, and uh, it's really going to show come this fall. So I'm uh, it, you're ahead of me. I, I'm more of a fall plot guy, so I'm I got my screens planted. I got my uh, I got the disc and and work those in. I'm gonna get out there and start spraying for the fall plantings here pretty soon. And uh, you know, actually waiting for the bid prospectus to come in from for the logger. So. We're gonna see how that goes as well. Um, I'm gonna have the the back eight acres uh, logged further and and open up that canopy. So we'll see if anybody wants to mess with it. It's pretty small, so waiting for that. And uh, you know, just enjoying summer. So what kind of timber do you have back there? Is it a mix or? Uh, yeah, there's there's two different types. It's pretty wet, so there's there's swamp white oak, um, and uh, or swamp oak and uh, Soft maple are are the okay. two big ones, and it was logged in the past, but they took really really big trees out, and and now I have a bunch of good sized trees that are still shading out the canopy, and and I'm kind of at a point where I could let them go longer and get bigger and have more value, but my goal is for deer, and I really the the undergrowth back there is not strong. Um, it could be due that it's wet, and it could be that it just hasn't came back yet, but it's been a few years, and there's really not much. So we're going to try this route, dabble in it, see what happens, and, uh, you know, I can take that investment and put it into something else at the at the farm to, to help the deer sure. even more. So it might be a big disruption Great. right before deer season if they get it done this year, um, but, you know. My my neighbor logged his uh, two years ago, right before deer season, and I shot a buck like a month later. So I'm not that worried about it, really. Right. But we have a really good episode tonight. Who's coming on, Brian? Mr. 400 Inches. 400 Inches and two bucks. Anybody guess who that is? One and only Don Higgins. Yes, sir. Don Higgins from Higgins Outdoors going to join us and... Uh, we're just fired up to talk to him. He's a great guy. We we met him a while back, and he's just giving the shirt off of his back type of guy, which a lot of the people we talk to are, uh, actually. But Don was just super nice, and and we talked to Wes, too, his, his partner at Real World. And But we got Don tonight. I'm just excited to pick his brain about how he goes about ma- uh, managing habitat and, and hunting, really, some hunting strategy I think we're going to talk about, too. Yeah, definitely. I've been planting uh, real-world soybeans. I think it's my fourth season now. And uh, anytime I had a question, anytime I reach out to those guys, and I've had some conversations with Don over email, and he's always been very generous with his time and his, his knowledge, and it's really helped me out. It's getting get these things planted the correct way. And, uh, boy, it's just the way he goes, the way he approaches his scouting and setting up his farms and his trail camera strategies and 
his fan strategies. I, I think this is going to be a great episode. Our listeners are going to learn a lot from him. Yep. Yeah, I can't wait to, to talk habitat strategy with Don. I mean, I've been following him for a while, and uh, it seems like to learn a few things. So, well, let's uh, before we get into that, let's talk about our sponsors and get down the line. This episode of the podcast is brought to you by Five Two Outdoors. This is a new sponsor for the podcast, guys. Dale is the owner of this new store over in Jones, Michigan. Southern Michigan, border of Indiana, close to Ohio and Illinois also. Now, Dale is a longtime habitat manager, uh, follower of the podcast, property owner himself, deer killer, and now opened a store representing Packer Max Cultipackers and Lazy Man Blinds. Guys, these blinds are pretty darn sweet, too. Check them out online. Uh, he's the newest dealer and they are two-piece all-fiberglass blinds, and Dale sells them right there at 5-2 Outdoors. Be sure to go on our Facebook page and check them out, like his page, and you'll be seeing more from uh, myself and Dale coming up soon when I go down there to visit him. So, 5-2 Outdoors on Facebook and 5-2Outdoors.com. Next is Nick Nation at the Habitat Hook. The Habitat Hook, guys, is from Nation's Creations. They also have been carrying watering holes now these are watering holes like we build and put in the grounds ourselves but they are actually made to look realistic besides the black poly tubs that you've seen me and teddy clark and swellers using so these things are pretty cool looking there are two different sizes a large and a medium both available for pickup over at nation's creations once again called the earth blind watering holes now, the large size measures 74 inches by 48 inches, and the medium is 48 by 48. Nick's got some cool pictures of deer actually utilizing these on his property on Facebook. So go to the Habitat Hook Facebook, see the watering holes. You can hook up with Nick and get yours uh, for your property today. Lastly, dip that hydrographics. You guys want some cool stuff done, reach out to Gabe on Facebook at dip that hydrographics. I know Brian got his muzzle loader done. I'm going to get my 450 Bushmaster done and maybe another gun yet. So I know he's very good at hydrographic dipping. That's the film that lays on top of the water. And he'll do anything for you. You can do tumblers, you can do construction helmets, bow risers, whatever you guys want to get dipped. Be sure to check out Dip That Hydrographics and you will get a discount on your product. I also don't want to forget that you get discounts on the Habitat Hook as well from Nation's Creations. So, guys, I want to thank our sponsors one more time. Dip That Hydrographics, The Habitat Hook, and 5-2 Outdoors. Now, without further ado, let's get Don Higgins on the line. All right, everybody, welcome back to another episode of The Habitat Podcast. We have Don Higgins on the line. How you doing tonight, Don? Great. How you guys? Well, Don, Don is from... Uh, real-world wildlife products, and also Higgins Outdoors. I'm sure many of our listeners have uh, have heard of you before, and if not, well, they're going to hear uh, about you now. So thanks for getting on tonight. Yeah, well, I appreciate you guys having me. It's, uh, it's always a pleasure talking about deer hunting and, and habitat, so I'm glad to do it. Heck, yeah. Well, I, I know when we met you at the ATA show, it was uh, – it was cool just how genuine of a guy you were and 
and down to earth. And I mean, he struck up a conversation with us for shoot, it's probably 30 minutes, and uh, just really nice of you. And you know, seemed like a normal guy like the rest of us. So it was really cool. Well, thank you. I, I just, you know, I tell a lot of people I'm just nothing but a simple country boy. Uh, chasing my dream like a lot of other guys uh, in the deer hunting industry. So I'm always glad to talk with others and don't look down on anyone. That's perfect. It's a good way to look at life. Well, normally we start this out uh, with an introduction. We'd like to paint a picture for the listeners of who Don Higgins is, where you're from, what you do for a living, uh, you know, the, the whole backstory, maybe how you got bit with a deer hunting bug. Um, feel free to dive into that if you don't mind. Sure. Um, I live in central Illinois, uh, where I've lived all my life. Um, I actually got started or got interested in the outdoors at a very young age. Um, I was so young, I can't even remember when it started. I think I've had it my whole entire life. But, uh, you know, I remember as a young kid, uh, anything there was a season for, uh, around my central Illinois home, you know, I was chasing it, whether it be uh, fishing, trapping, hunting, whatever. And then uh, when I was 16 years old, uh, my third season of deer hunting, I shot my first deer, nine-point buck. And when I walked up on that deer, it was like my whole world changed. Um, God just lit a passionate fire in my heart for whitetails. And within probably, oh, five years or so, I'd just about given up all other outdoor interests. Um, I can't, I, the last time I was fishing was probably 25 years ago. <laughs> um, I've never turkey hunted a day in my life. For me, it's just white tails. And, uh, then as time went on, I, I just kept raising the bar and, and chasing bigger and big, bigger and older bucks. Uh, and that's my passion today. I, I just want to hunt the biggest, oldest bucks I can find, cover a lot of ground doing it. Um, when I got out of high school, I worked about 20 years in a factory and uh, eventually got out of there and started my own business, uh, a tree nursery, and, and was a conservation tree planting contractor. Um, and did that for, I don't know, quite close to 15 years and just sold that business a couple of years ago. But, uh, you know, there's probably nobody in the hunting industry that's planted more trees than I have. Um, I literally <laughs> have planted several million. Uh, yeah, there was one spring that uh, we planted a half a million trees in seven different states uh, in the Midwest, and that was just one one spring. Like I said, I did that for about 15 years. So uh, I also worked as a conservation planting contractor, planting uh, warm season native grasses. So I've got a lot of experience in, in that arena as well. Um, I raised captive whitetails for nearly 25 years. For, Basically, it was a small research herd that I had. I just uh, wanted to, to learn as much as I could about whitetails, so I got a few. And I did a lot of uh, experiments. I, you know, you couldn't call them really scientific because my, uh, my sample size was so small that uh, it, I didn't learn anything that, you know, I could publish uh, scientific reports or anything, but I did learn a bunch about whitetails. Uh, most of my studies focused on nutrition and genetics. Uh, there was 11 straight years where I artificially bred my does to some of the biggest bucks on earth and basically studied antler genetics uh, that way firsthand right here on my own farm. Um, but, you know, like I said, I got rid of those captive deer um, two years ago. Today, I primarily work uh, 
uh, it's still pretty much multifaceted. I'm the co-owner of Real World Wildlife Products, uh, uh, food processing and, and the deer nutrition company. Um, I own Higgins Outdoors, where I do a lot of consulting work um, with landowners. Last winter, I was on 50-some properties in nine states, um, meeting with landowners and developing plans for their property. Uh, so I got a lot of different irons in the fire. Write magazine articles I started writing nearly 25 years ago. Uh, had my first article published in North American Whitetail, but in the years since, I've had articles published in just about every major hunting magazine. I've written two books on hunting trophy whitetails, and uh, I'm just a student of the whitetail. You know, I don't consider myself an expert, but, uh, you know, I just try to continually learn and, and get better at what I do and and uh, share the knowledge that I gained with others and, you know, hope I can make a positive impact on their life somehow. Wow. Wow. I've met a few people who have had captive deer or deer farms uh, at some point or another in their life, and each person seems to be uh, very, very knowledgeable about the whitetail. You know, it sounds obvious, but I think there are some advantages to that when when you go out in the hunting in the woods. Have you noticed that, has that helped you become a successful hunter or habitat manager, um, having deer of your own? Well, there's absolutely no doubt about it. Uh, you know, when you're with those animals 365 days a year, and you get to see that life cycle from the time those fawns are born until they're, you know, mature bucks, five or six years old, and, and you know the genetics of those animals, and you can compare, you know, like a buck's rack to his father and grandfather's racks, and it just, uh, a lot of the things you learn really don't make you a better hunter, although some of them clearly do. But it just helps you learn about whitetails. It's an experience that, uh, you know, I'm glad I, I, I took part in. I never had a, a lot of deer. Uh, I think at the most I probably had about 40 at one time. But uh, it, it definitely made me a much better hunter. Very nice, very nice. How big of a antler size or, or rack did you end up getting out of breeding those deer? What was your biggest one? I had a couple that were over 300 inches. Three? Um, yeah, I mean, that's that's not really that big for captive deer. Okay. Um, it, it was pretty easy for me to separate the captive from the wild. My heart is with the wild whitetail, no yeah. doubt about it. Yeah. And uh, it just, the captive deer just helped me appreciate those wild animals all the more. You know, I learned the vocalizations and just, just all kind of, especially the nutrition and the things and and how uh, deer's needs and, and even their appetite changes so drastically throughout the, the course of a year. Huh. Very cool. Well, thanks for that. Um, now, you mentioned consulting and, and property plans or property tours. How long have you been doing that? Uh, well, uh, somewhere uh, around 10 years now. Okay. And it kind of it started by accident, really. Uh, you know, I was... Like I mentioned, I, I do outdoor writing, and, and some of the readers of my magazine articles uh, would follow me, and, and I started getting email requests or calls from people you know, that said, hey, I've been reading your articles for years, and I wondered if you'd mind coming and taking a look at my property and making some suggestions. And So, uh, you know, I'm never one to turn down an opportunity like that, so I, I started uh, pursuing that a little bit, and then it just seemed every year 
can grow a little bit more. And, uh, like last year, I did 50-some properties, and that's about my limit because I just I don't want to do it unless I can really get a good feel for property, and that means going in the winter months when the leaves are off the trees and such. So I start right after the firearm seasons, usually in about mid-December, and uh, depending on the state. And then I go until things green up in the spring. So there's only about a three-and-a-half, four-month or so period there where I'm doing that. And, uh, you know, I'm about at my limit of how many I can do now with the other things I have going on. Yeah, yeah. So you were hunting and and growing trees and, and cattle and raising deer along along the way, and then habitat management came along, kind of fell into your, your lap, if you will, for some of the articles of success you were having. Um, what do you like the most out of all the different business uh, endeavors you have going right now? Which one's the most enjoyable to you? Well, that's a tough question because I really, I'm living the dream. I enjoy everything <laughs> I do. Um, the real world wildlife products, you know, I enjoy testing those new products on the various properties that I either own or manage. Um, always trying to come up with something better than what I've already got as far as seed blend and such. Uh, some of the, um, when I had the captive deer, some of the things I learned about deer nutrition, uh, I combined with some knowledge from uh, like one of the leading uh, white-tailed veterinarians in the world, Dr. Schiffick, University of Illinois, uh, a couple of um, uh, livestock nutritionists, Dr. Aaron Gaines and Brent Ratliff. Uh, we've worked close with them to develop like our mineral and our uh, deer feed supplements and such. So I really enjoy uh, putting those new products together, but uh I don't know if I had to pin it down to one thing. It's probably meeting landowners and consulting on their properties. And, and the reason is because it's just so rewarding is, you know, even months or even a couple of years or so after you've been to a property, when you get a call or an email or a text or a photo, a guy just killed the biggest buck of his life and he's giving you all the credit for it because of something you told him or he says, I killed this out of the tree where you tied the ribbon and told me to hang my stand. Uh, even though I'm not the hunter shooting the buck, there's, there's a great deal of satisfaction that comes from helping somebody else succeed. Yeah, it sure is. sure is. Now, Don, what's a uh, day of consulting look like? How, how do you start out when you're approaching a new property? And uh, maybe give us some tips on what you're looking for. Okay, sure. Uh, well, I do things probably a little bit different than, than most other consultants, not saying my way's better or theirs is wrong or anything, but, you know, the first thing I want to do with any potential client is I got a series of about 10 questions I ask them, and they're related to, uh, you know, their goals as a hunter, um, the hunting pressure on their property and around their property, um, what the, the, the hunting, the other activities that take place there, you know, uh, maybe fishing or small game hunting, turkey hunting or whatever. And then at the same time, I want to see an aerial of their property with the with the boundaries of the property marked on the aerial. So, uh, you know, I kind of – I take the two pieces of information, that aerial as well as uh, the information they give me from answering those questions, and I see if it's really possible for me to help them reach their goals. 
Um, you know, for example, if someone calls and, and their goal is out of line with the property they have to work with, I want to let them know before they ever spend a dime with me. You know, I want to let them know the concerns I have first. Um, sure. I just assume somebody, I, I just assume spend a little bit of time with somebody and not be paid for it and, uh, be upfront with them and, and honest and get them off to a good start as to just take their money and, and, and give them some information. But, but that's how it all starts. So I, I you know, I, I, it used to be that I was, I would weed out about uh, close to 50% of the potential clients just because I was so picky about uh, um, who I would take. And right. then there was a couple of instances where I was borderline on, on a couple of properties. Uh, I wasn't sure if I should take them or not, and I went ahead and did it. And once I got there, I was glad I did because um, each, an aerial is only going to be so much. You know, there's no substitute for boots on the ground. So, um, you know, once I agree to uh, to take on a client, uh, I'll visit the property. I'll review all his information again, usually the evening before. And then when I get there, uh, we'll tour the property. Usually, try like to start with either a drive around the the area so I can get a kind of a feel for what's going on on other properties. Okay. And sometimes I just do that on my drive to the farm uh, before I even arrive. Um, but then if we can kind of start by going, looking at the perimeter of the property, kind of follow the edge of the property boundaries and, and then dig into the heart of it some, uh, you know, just depending on how big the property is and, and what we can see from the edge. Right. And, uh, you know, I tell everybody that uh, they need to think of their property as one square of a giant checkerboard of other squares. Um, if you're in an airplane looking down at 30,000 feet at your property, you know, it's one tiny square and there's a whole lot of other squares on that checkerboard. we got to do everything that we possibly can to get the deer in that area to, to want to spend as many daylight hours as possible on that one square. And that means setting it apart uh, from the other squares around it. Now, what, what I found is that uh, most people are, are pretty educated, uh, um, you know, on deer habitat. There's a lot of information out there anymore, like this podcast, for example. You know, it's just an excellent way for people to learn. And creating good deer habitat is really not that difficult. And in fact, it's pretty easy to, to go on a property and improve the habitat. Anybody can do it. What's a little more difficult is arranging that habitat in such a way that uh, you can kill any buck that's living there. And that's my goal when I set up a property. I want I want that landowner to be able to kill the biggest buck running that property every year. Um, and basically that's done, there's no cookie cutter approach. You know, you, you can't use the same approach on every property because every property is unique. Sure. And there's some properties where the bedding cover or the sanctuary is in the middle of the property and there's some where it's on the edge of the property and the food's in the middle. And there's just a, you know, I don't know how many properties I've done now, but there's no supply. They're just all different. Uh, you got different access points. You know, you got different. The, the landowners got different goals. The, the hunting pressure around the property is different. Um, one guy may have a lot of pressure on one side of his property, none on the other. So obviously, you're going to want to pull those deer across the property to the direction where there's no pressure. And it, it's just, you know, there's a thousand different things you've got to look at. But my ultimate goal is to uh, put a, put together a plan where that landowner can year after year consistently kill the biggest buck on that property 
and I'll detail that plan in, in writing as well as a marked aerial. Yeah, I'll send him a hard copy, printed out copy of the plan and the aerial. I'll also send them a digital copy via email. And then uh, probably the thing that really sets me apart from a lot of other consultants is that I'll keep a copy of that plan on my computer. So any of my clients can call me five years down the road and they can say, hey, I got a question about food plot number two or tree stand number 10 or whatever. And I can pull up their area on their plan and I can answer their question intelligently because I know exactly what they're talking about. I've got that, that arrow, that marked arrow right in front of me as they're asking the question. Very nice. So, uh, that's cool. That, that's kind of my approach to, to consulting in a nutshell. Yeah, I like the way you put that about arranging the habitat changes. Because a lot of guys, like you said, they, they know what to do, but that becomes the hardest piece of the puzzle, I think, is to making sure you're arranging them the right way. I, I like the way you put that. Well, that's really the key because, uh, like I said, creating good capacities, anyone should be able to go onto a property with the information that's available today. Anyone should be able to go to their property and increase the number of deer that are on that property, increase even the size of the bucks on that property. But, you know, what good does it do you to, to grow the biggest bucks in the whole county if you're not able to kill them? Right. So uh, arranging that those habitat improvements in such a way that you can benefit from them, I think, is the key. Do you have a uh, small list of things that you try to implement on every property or, or does it go back to what you're saying that it's just so different for each one? No, there, there is no list of, I mean, there's a long list of, of possible things that I'll suggest, but uh, uh, there's really nothing that I do. Well, I mean, I, I create a sanctuary, a bedding sanctuary on every property, but you know, how it's okay. laid out and what that cover consists of may vary from property to property. You know, on, a, on an open property uh, with a lot of open uh, tillable acreage, that might mean uh, fields of switchgrass. When on a heavily wooded property, you know, it might mean logging or maybe there's no timber of value, so it's got to be hinge cut or uh, timber sand improvement or something done. So. There's just uh there's just a whole long list of possibilities and, and everyone's different. Right. Now, do you apply that uh, sanctuary idea to any size property, or is there some properties that just get too small to to try to uh, institute something like that? I always try to. Um, you know, one thing I always tell my clients is that uh, to consistently kill mature bucks. You've got to hunt them on the properties they spend their daylight hours. That means where they bed. I fully believe if you're just one property over from where a buck beds, your odds of killing that buck are 10% what they are if you was on the same property. So I really, really try to get the, some mature bucks bedding on any property that I can sold on. Okay. Well. Now, when you're seeing these uh, properties all over the country when you're traveling, is there a couple of things you see that uh, stand out that people make a lot of similar mistakes that you could talk about? Well, yeah, if I could offer any advice, it would be, you know, to a potential client. Um, it would be to be open-minded when I get there. I think a lot of, of clients try to make it harder than it really is. 
I think the Internet is, is largely responsible for that because there's so much information out there, and, and there's a lot of good information as far as creating better deer habitat. But as far as really arranging that habitat in a way that you can kill a mature buck consistently or, uh, you know, just just making your property better for mature bucks instead of specifically instead of uh, deer in general, um, it's a little bit different game. So I think a lot of my clients will have preconceived ideas in their mind, and sometimes it's difficult. For, for them to accept what I'm saying. You know, when I go to, a, to meet with a new client, I can usually tell within the first hour that I'm there with them how well this is going to go for them. Okay. Um, the ones that are really open-minded, those are the guys that I expect that I'm going to hear from in the next two years that are going to send me a picture of a giant. Uh, and then sometimes, you know, I'll go to the property, and, and not to bash anybody, because I certainly appreciate everything that thinks enough for me to hire me, but sometimes I'll go to a property, and it's, it's almost like the landowner has already got uh, in his mind what he's going to do, and and instead of, you know, being open-minded and, and listening to my ideas, he's telling me what he's already going to do, you know, well, I'm going to do right. this here, and I'm going to do that there, and um. So I, you know, I try my best to to offer a good service for each individual because every, each one is different. And so I kind of I try to listen to uh, to the client and uh, make sure that to my, the best of my ability I can offer him some back. I mean, like I said, he's not enough of me to hire me. I, I want him to get something positive out of it. And uh, so, sometimes it's a little harder for me to do that than others. Um, some guys, sometimes I'll go to a property and the guy has already started habitat improvement and laying things down. He's done a fantastic job. He's done things that I can't argue with whatsoever. And I might just offer a couple of suggestions and, that, and that's all he's going to get from me because he's already done such a good job to start. That's about all I could do. But, um, one thing that everybody can get from me is brutal honesty. And, uh, you know, sometimes I have to some things that's not the easiest for me to say to. But I think if they're paying me, uh, you know, my fee to come to their property, they deserve the truth. So right. uh, sometimes the truth is brutal, but, you know, I think they deserve it. All right, Don. So you mentioned a couple great things that got my attention. Um, the the whole setting up a property for a mature buck versus setting up a property for deer. Now, a lot of people, including myself, have set up a property to attract does or more deer, and then hopefully the buck follows, right? Um, mm -hmm. What do you mean exactly? Can you give some examples of how maybe some of your landowners maybe have done it in the past to where they didn't set it up for a mature buck and they did set it up for deer only? Um, or, or maybe how somebody could make that mistake? Because that's very interesting to me. I have a small property, and... And my goals are aligned with the mature buck goal, so I'm curious to know what those specific things could be, uh, what the differences are. Well, a mature buck desires freedom of human intrusion over anything, over food, over hot does, over anything. And a big mistake that I see on a lot of properties day after day in the wintertime when I'm out doing these visits, it's like I see, it's just I can almost count on it 
is that a lot of, of guys on their properties, they, they've got a series of trails and mode paths where they, they, they're trying to access every square inch of their property or every acre. And uh, they, they leave nothing for the deer. And, and it works for, for does and for younger bucks. But when you start getting a buck that's five, six years old, he's not going to put up with a mode path. He doesn't even want to walk a mode path. Um, you know, years ago, I used to mow paths through my switchgrass and through my weeds and stuff for, for the deer to follow. And I no longer do that because the deer will follow it for sure, but a mature buck will not just, I mean, there's no absolute. So, you know, occasionally you'll yeah. see them do it, but a mature buck would much rather have those weeds and briars and switchgrass and whatever. He'd rather have that right up against his side. And uh, I just think that, that some people carry their habitat improvements to the extreme where they actually make it less attractive for a mature buck. It's more attractive for deer in general. But for an older, mature buck, it's less attractive. Okay. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. Um, I've actually done that, and I can't say I've seen any mature bucks walk down those. I actually had some some tall grass in between two food plots that the last mature buck I shot walked through. Not the food plot mm-hmm. on either side, but between uh, he walked in the cover in between the two of them. That's actually very interesting. Um what else do you have in your, in mind for the, the a difference? I mean, are you putting little water holes out there? Are you uh, are you just staying the heck out all year round, or or what are you are you leaving half of your property alone entirely? Well, you know, everything a mature buck does is uh, hinges on the wind. So, you know, what you can get away with hunting lesser deer you cannot get away with with a mature buck because you know Roger Rothar years ago put it the best that I ever heard it the wind has to be almost wrong for the hunter and almost right for the buck you you can't expect a buck to just hop on his feet and commit suicide you know run around without paying attention to the wind everything he does is calculated and the wind is part of that equation so you know when I'm setting up properties it's like when I mark a stand on, on somebody's area or I tie, when I'm on the visit, you know, and I'm tying a ribbon to a tree and saying, you need to stand here, uh, I'm telling them exactly what wind direction and what time of season to hunt. Mm. I'm saying, you want to hunt this tree on a northwest wind in the morning in November, early in the rut. And it's all, uh, you know, luck no longer, if you want to consistently kill big deer, luck's out the window. Luck right. has nothing to do with it, consistently. And so every everything's calculated, and uh, it starts by getting that buck to, to stay on that property. But once you get him staying there, you got to know how he's going to move on that property, when he's going to move, what wind direction he's going to use to get to that plot or to, to check that bedding area for hot does or whatever. It's all got to be laid out in a calculated way so that, Luck's no longer the, the factor that determines are you going to kill a big deer this year or not. It's it's just not part of the equation any longer. Okay, so that example with the wind being, you know, almost wrong for you and and almost right for the buck. Can you kind of paint a picture on that? Say you have a forty acre square, you have the buck bedding directly in the middle, and say you have, uh, I guess, how would you? portray that where would the stand be in which direction would you hunt 
Could you paint that out a little bit in more detail? Well, under ideal can, uh, ideal situation, you want that buck to be traveling with a wind quartering into his nose. He don't like to travel with a wind straight into his nose, but he likes for it to be quartering into his nose. And if you're just off to the other side of that trail, he's coming with that nose wind, but it's a quartering nose wind, and you're off to the other side, there's no way he can smell you. Now, what you've got to factor in is where your scent's going because he's going to want to smell as much of the area he's moving through as possible. He's not, again, he's not going to just commit suicide. So he, he wants to, to walk the edge of, you know, whatever. A field edge, a lot of times he'll walk within the cover, but he's out on the edge of the woods. Or, you know, like around a bluff or where there's a big creek or a river makes a bend and there's a high bluff. That deer wants to hug that bluff so, you know, that he can smell the cover there as much as possible. He, he don't want to just be walking through the middle and, and only be able to smell half of it. So you get, just knowing how mature bucks travel using the wind is, is a big part of it. And, and then once you know that, then you can lay that property out to take advantage of that. And that would determine... I hope that all made sense. Yeah, so that would determine where you're putting... Your bedding, where you're putting your food, maybe the predominant wind direction, and then you would put, probably place your stands um, on how you can access them safely, right? Exactly. So, you, you know, it's, it kind of starts with where you're going to make that deer bed or, or okay. encourage that buck to bed. <laughs> so, so once you know where he's bedding, it's not. It's no longer deer hunting. Is no longer just a, a situation where you go out and you find some sign, or wherever you find the most sign, you throw your stand up and then you hunt it when the wind's blowing from the sign to you, and <laughs> you're hoping any deer that comes by don't smell you. Instead, it's all calculated. Yeah. You, you know where that buck's bedding, and then you pull him in whatever direction with features such as food plots. Okay. Okay. So say he's. Uh... Bedded to the west, you have food plots straight east. So he's heading uh, in into the wind to the east. And, and say there's a say there's a north east wind. It'd be quartering at his nose, right? Would that be right. an ideal yep. situation? Yeah, depending on how everything's laid out. Okay. So what what if the wind is straight? Uh, basically across them from left to right. Do they travel that way very often? They do a lot. Okay. Actually, especially in the morning, early in the rut, they will want to use a crosswind and, and run the downwind edge of thick bedding cover as they're looking for hot does. Right. They want that crosswind or a quartering wind, you know, that's coming out of that cover into their nose. Okay. And when you're setting up these stand locations, so you know where he beds, so, like, my property is a huge swamp to the west. That's where they bed. That's where they all come out of. Are there any other no-nos or special strategies that you would tell a normal landowner, make sure you do this or make sure you don't do that, um, if you're trying to pull them from west to east, etc.? I mean, do you have a, a rule on how far back towards the bed you go or hunting the edge of a plot? Do you have any rules like that or suggestions? Well, I, I typically like to hunt closer to the bed than the food, but a lot of that depends on the pressure. You know, if you get an unpressured property and deer move freely in daylight, you can set up out anywhere uh, between the, the food and the bed. Uh, later in the season when the 
especially in brutal cold winter weather, um, a hunt closer to food. Um, a big reason for that is it's a lot harder to get close to the bedding area. They can spot you from so much farther away when all the leaves are gone. But uh, you know, I don't know if that answers your question yeah. or not. But. Yeah. Now, Don, we're uh, doing everything we can to give these mature bucks a sanctuary and try to stay out of there. How do we go about setting up our trail cameras when we're first trying to figure out what they're doing? We don't want to put any pressure on them in the in the sanctuary, but uh, how, how can we begin? Is there a time of year that you'll get into that sanctuary with cameras, or do you try to stay out of there completely? I stay out of the sanctuaries. I, I've tried that uh, years ago when the first uh, cellular cameras came out. I, I was... I tried that in a couple places, and you, you just—it's uh, it, almost impossible to slip into a mature buck's bedroom without him knowing it. Any more, the more experience I get, I, I don't even care about daylight pictures anymore. Uh, what I want to know is—is is a buck that, that I want to target. Is he staying on the property where I'm hunting? Okay. And so I, I keep my cameras away from the sanctuary for sure, but. Also, away from my stand sites for the most part, you know, I don't care if I get his picture out in a field edge at midnight. Um, that, that tells me he's around. That tells me how big he is. And uh, I, I know if I know where he's at, i got a chance to kill him. That's interesting. You don't put any cameras up by your tree stands? Almost never. Hmm. There are some bucks that the camera doesn't bother them whatsoever. Right, and there's others. You get their picture one time at a location, you're done. You're not getting his picture there again. Yeah, that makes sense. I never thought of it like that. So yeah, they're all your... individual. I think that's something right. that a lot of hunters don't realize is how different bucks are. Yeah, that was one thing I noticed uh, in that story about Smokey and Trump, and you were telling us on uh, trying to remember the, the uh, what was it 13? I think the video was on. YouTube. Yeah. That was interesting how you painted the picture of how different they were. They, they were the extremes. Of all the mature bucks I hunted, uh, Smokey was the easiest one I've ever hunted in my life, even though he was one of the biggest. And Trump was one of the hardest. In fact, I just wrote an article, sent it to Deer and Deer Hunting about a month ago on my toughest buck, and it was about Trump. Um there was just no rhyme or reason to what he was going to do next or where he would show up. Huh. Well, we're definitely going to get to that story, but I want to pick your brain a little more about the trail cameras. If you're not getting into the bedding area with them and you mm-hmm. keep them away from your stands, how are you using those to get your uh, to ambush these ambush these mature bucks? Well, I, you know, like I said, I'm using them more than anything to locate a buck and, and to figure out where what bucks are on the properties I've got permission to hunt, to take inventory, if you will. So in the summertime, I'm basically putting those on feeding areas. I live in an area where, where ag is big, so we got a lot of soybean fields and alfalfa and things like that. So just through years of experience, you know, I kind of know where the deer like to enter these different fields. Um, you know, for example, bachelor groups, you know, I know exactly – the bachelor groups stay in the same place every summer. 
So, you know, if there's a bachelor group at a certain place this summer, he, they're going to be there year after year unless something major changes. And so I kind of learned the patterns of those different bachelor groups and the fields they like to feed in, the corners where they come out to feed and such. And that's where I'm focusing my my cameras in the summertime. And then about the time they shed velvet in early September, I shift uh, my cameras and I really, I'm putting them in funnel areas and, uh, you know, things like fence crossings and, uh, things like that. But also I use a lot of rope scrapes. You, know, you guys probably have heard of, you know, hanging a piece of rope from a tree branch. Oh, yeah. And creating a, a scrape under it. I use that a lot. That's a really good way. If you've got a, a rope scrape on a property, you can inventory every buck there. You can, you can get a picture of every buck on that property. So you use I, I use that a lot. I do. I use Smokies. Um, the reason I like Smokies, Smokies scents are made by a trapper, Smokey McNicholas, out of West Virginia. Oh, yeah. And um, it's not something that you can go down to your Walmart and buy. I don't want on my ropes, I don't want the same thing that the, the guy down the road using to hunt with, you know. He's right. out there sitting in his stand smoking and doing whatever, not paying any attention to the wind and He's got a certain brand of scent he's putting out. All he's doing is educating deer that scent. So Smokey's is a little harder to come by. You know, I get it directly from Smokey himself. Uh, there's just He's got a handful of dealers. But, you know, you don't want something that every Tom, Dick, and Harry in the neighborhood using. You want something different, but you want something good. And, and I've used about every scent that Smokey's made and had great success with all of them. And, and I just love the fact that nobody else in the area is using it. Yeah, that makes sense. That's a great point. Okay, so you got the uh, inventory of the bucks with the rope scrape. We've got pictures of them where they like to feed. How do you take that information and determine where you're going to put your tree stands? To, to be honest, the uh, the trail cameras do not tell me where to put my tree stands. It just experience sure. tells me that. The only thing I'm really using uh, – the trail cameras for is to inventory bucks and to build history with a buck. It's pattern like oh, a lot of bucks will shift their range about the time they shed velvet in September. And uh, I know a lot of it has been written about, a lot of magazine articles have been written about, you know, guys watch a, a buck in velvet all summer and they're counting on putting their tag on him that fall and come hunting season, the bucks disappeared. And sure. there's a lot of different uh theories have been thrown out as to why they move but the fact is that some bucks just have a separate fall winter range than what they do a summer range and uh, so you know I try to pick up on things like that uh, you know there's a buck right now that I watched uh, been getting his picture for about three summers last year he would have pushed 200 inches and uh, if he would stay where he summers I, I could hunt him on about three or four different properties I have permission to hunt but the the thing of it is, that buck packs up about the time he sheds velvet. Last year, I got his last picture, September 5th, and boom, he's gone. He goes and he moves about a mile and a half. And I know exactly where he goes, but I just can't get permission on any properties where he goes. So it's frustrating when you see a pattern like that that you can't capitalize on or find a buck like that. But, uh, you know, there's other bucks, like here on my place, uh, there's a buck that shows up here in October. He's not here all summer. He doesn't. He's not here in September. But in early October, he shows up, and uh, he, he's a good one. Last year, he was a five by six, eleven pointer, 
that would have been over 170 inches. Um, this year he'll be six years old, and I'll probably end up shooting him. But that buck is not here all summer. I, I've not got a ever in my life if I got a single uh, velvet picture of that buck. Nor do I have one in September. He doesn't even show up till October. So, you know, those kind of patterns you can pick up on. Um, you know, a couple things that I've written about over the years. Uh, back in 2003, I'd never seen this in print before or anywhere else. But I talked about uh, same time, same place is the name of the article, where a buck will, when they shift range, they'll do it at, the, at the, almost the same date every year. And, and bucks seem to have an annual pattern. And I think too many times guys go out their trail cameras and they're trying to pick up on a daily pattern. What's this buck doing? And, you know, I got his picture for three times last week and he was coming to this food plot, you know, and so uh, I'm going to go hunt near that food plot and, and capitalize on it. And, you know, I don't think that that happens too much, um, but the annual pattern is something that you can be a and the reason that's so difficult is because you're always a step behind the buck. Um, right, right. But if you can pick up on that annual pattern, you can be waiting on him. So this, for example, this buck at my place that shows up in early October, you know, I'm set up waiting for that buck to show up this October. Um, there's other bucks that, you know, they don't show up till late season. You know, after the rut, They'll show up on my place because uh, I've got I've got more food here than anyone in the area, and so I draw in a lot of deer in the late season that were not here in the rut. So, you know, if I get a giant that doesn't show up until late season, I know I'm not going to shoot that deer in the rut. Yeah, I, I got to wait till you know the time he's here. So I kind of pick up on the manual patterns uh, quite a bit as well. But you know, another thing that I wrote about and I haven't seen, I, I'm really surprised that that more people haven't, uh, you know, a lot of times when somebody throws out an idea, it's not long before a lot of people are repeating that idea. Sure. And, uh, and nothing wrong with that by any means. But, you know, one thing I threw out a couple of years ago, um, I did an article titled Homecoming Bucks. And, and really nobody seemed to catch on to it, but it's a definite pattern that you can uh, take advantage of. And, and what that, that article was about was I've noticed that a lot of times, a buck will return, those bucks that have a summer range and a, and a totally separate fall winter range, well, they move to that fall winter range usually about the time they shed velvet up through early October is when most of them move. But what happens a lot of times early in the rut, those bucks will make a journey back to where they summered. And it, it's usually around November 5th to the 8th. And, and what I think happens is those bucks go to their fall range the rough's starting to heat up, and they cannot find a hot dough, uh, that first hot dough. So what they do is they'll run back to where they summered looking for a hot dough. And usually a lot of those pictures I get are at night. Hmm. But it's usually only one time, and then he's gone. You don't get him again the rest of the rut. Wow. Um, they'll also do it at the very, very end of the rut, you know, around Thanksgiving weekend or such. Those bucks that left, that summered there but left for the fall, will make a return trip late in the rut looking for a hot dough. And I'm telling you, sometimes it'll only last for – it might be overnight. You know, at one night he runs back and he's gone before daylight, so there's nothing you could really do about it, even if you knew. Um, but if you can pick up on those patterns with your trail cameras as you're watching that buck grow up, um, what I found is, is trail cameras make it almost easy to kill mature bucks because 
most of them that I'm hunting, I've watched through trail cameras for, you know, anywhere from three to five or six years. So by the time, uh, back in 2014 and 15, two years in a row, my target buck, I shot the very first day I ever hunted him. And the one in 2014, um, he, he wasn't that big of a buck. He was a four-year-old cull buck, but uh, I knew what he was going to do. So, and, and there's a certain amount of luck to that. Don't get me wrong, but but I knew what that buck was going to do before he did it, and I was there waiting on him. And the first hunt, I shot it. And in 2015, that buck was a six and a half-year-old, 180-inch buck that I'd watched grow up since he was a year and a half. He had always had at least, even as a yearling, he had six points on each side. And so I was watching him from the time he was a yearling. And when it finally came time to hunting, uh, he was six and a half years old, and I went in, and uh, the pattern I put together was he was using this little um, wooded draw. He, he would come in there during the rut to look for does. There was a lot of does that liked to bed in that draw. But every year I'd have cameras in that draw, and he would not show up until about November 6th would be his first visit. And his last visit to that draw would be about November 20th. So I had about a two-week window there in the middle of November when that buck was, was hitting that draw looking for does. So I had my stand set, and I totally stayed away until November 6th was when I wanted to go in. Well, it just so happened on the 6th, the wind was wrong for either of my two stands in that draw. On November 7th, the wind was wrong. Finally, November 8th, I got a switch in the wind and, and could get in that draw and hunt. I killed that buck the first morning I'd ever hunted him, and I'd watched him for six years. And that was all possible because of the trail cameras I had in that draw for the previous years. Jeez. Okay. So, so, so I'm using my trail cameras this year. I'm getting information that I'm not even going to utilize this year. I'll use it in future seasons. Yep. Gotcha. No, I've, I've heard of that on multiple podcasts and, and I keep all my mature buck sightings from the trail cameras in a file. Um, I should be better at reviewing those prior to season, and I will be this year. Now, out of curiosity, how many cameras are you running down, and, and what kind are they? And I mean, do you have got big 12-volt batteries to them, or are they cellular? Tell me about those. How many? Well, I've got over 50, oh, um, wow. somewhere between 50 and 60. But, you know, I'm running uh, I'm running them on about five, five or six different counties around my home, so I mean, I'm covering a lot of ground, and uh, uh, Reconics is, is the camera that I've had the best luck with. They're pretty expensive, so um, all of them that I have aren't Reconics. I've also got some Exodus. Uh, I've got uh, five or six Spartans cell cams. Those are the only cell cams I have of those uh, five Spartans. Um, they got some coverts. Browning, uh, I've got a little bit of everything, but you know, really, hands down, Reconics is is without a doubt the best camera on the market. Okay. In my opinion. So. Yeah, and how are you powering all these? Just are you rechargeable double A's? Are you lithiums, or how are you doing that? I uh, just ultimate lithiums. Okay. Those Reconics are good for about forty thousand pictures in one set of batteries. So. Oh, wow. uh, most of those cameras, I will go through no more than two sets of batteries. So, yeah, that gives me eighty thousand pictures. It's not very many locations where I'm going to get eighty thousand pictures in a 
Yeah, I put them out about July 1st. I don't I don't go too early because I want to make sure when the when I first put them out that the bucks have enough antler growth yeah. that uh, you can tell individual bucks. So I start about July 1st and I pull them all about March 1st or somewhere in March. Okay. So mm. during that time, two sets of batteries and a recalling will, will pretty much take me two, and some of them one set. Well, so whatever you're spending in terms of a higher trail camera price, you're you're saving in battery costs. So, <laughs> well, and dependability too. I yeah. mean, every Reconics I've ever bought, I'm still using them, except for a few of them that I had stolen. So, okay, okay. Now, I want to get into how you your 2017 season, how you killed the buck you named Trump uh, using your trail cameras. And another question, how did you come up with the name Trump? I'm curious. <laughs> well, I, I came up with the name Trump. Uh, the buck that I ended up naming Trump in the summer of 2016, the last presidential election, this buck shows up on my trail cameras. I didn't even notice it or didn't even recognize it first. Um, he just exploded in antler growth. The year before, he was probably about a 160-inch buck. And I really had to go back and study some trail cameras to figure out which buck he was because in 16 he was easily in the 190s. Holy uh, You know, he blew up and put at least 30-some inches on and uh, some stickers and stuff. But when I went back and studied trail camera pictures uh, from that same location in previous years, there was no doubt which buck it ended up being. And, you know, being a conservative, uh, I was a big Trump supporter. The election, you know, was heating up. And so uh, I, I just had to, uh, I, I don't know, tell the world my political views by naming <laughs> that fuck Trump. So uh, that, that's how I got his name. But, you know, as far as, uh, as how I use trail cameras to, to end up shooting that deer, um, he's a buck that changed his range. Uh, from his, he had a separate summer range than he did fall and winter. And I, I'd get his picture every summer, but I had no idea where he went in the fall and winter. And then he explodes, you know, and, and I know that, you know, I want to kill him, but I have no idea where to do that. And I know his summer range, but I don't have any idea where his fall winter range was at. But a couple of things I did know was I didn't think he went to the west because there was a property to the west that I hunted, and I never had his picture there. And I didn't think he went to the north because I had a property to the north that I hunted and always had cameras and never had his picture there. So I kind of surmised that he must be going to the south or the east. Um, so what I did that summer when he blew up is I went to the south and the east, and I just knocked on doors and got permission on as many properties as I could in that direction. And I just flooded that area for about uh, from his summer range to the south and east for about three miles. Every property I could get permission, I put trail cameras. I didn't hang stands to hunt because I didn't know if he even ran some of the properties. Wow. Or any of them, really. So I just went that direction, and I kind of flooded the area with trail cameras, and, and I got his picture on several of them. No way. Yeah, the, the thing that I noticed was that there was absolutely no rhyme or reason to what that buck was going to do or where he would show up next or anything, and and he moved almost always at night, and he covered a big range. There was one point I got two pictures of him three miles apart, and those two pictures were taken 17 hours apart. Oh, so in 17 hours, he covered three miles. 
And uh, so I had a handful of places where I'd got his picture on different properties and such. And but boy, the more I thought about it, it coming into, and that was a season I would have shot that deer um, in 2016, but uh, I never laid eyes on him. Uh, in the summer of 2017, you know, there he is back again in velvet, bigger than ever. Um, so I had my cameras out again all over, and he was pretty much staying in his summer range. But there was absolutely no rhyme or reason because, you know, he was hanging out in a bachelor group with some other bucks. But those other bucks, I would get their picture in daylight, and, and he would not be with them in daylight. But at night, he would be with them. So uh, he, he would stay bedded in the cover during the day. And just very, very tough buck to to put any kind of pattern to. So what I kind of concluded was that, you know, I could, and I had stands everywhere that I'd got his picture the year before, that spring, I was putting stands up in all those locations to hunt him. But as the season opened, I thought to myself, you know what, if I just start jumping around from here and there and everywhere, I'm always probably going to be one step behind him. Right. So what I need to do, is I need to figure out the very best place in his range that I know where he's at, and I just need to hammer that spot. Well, it turned out that where he summered at, he would stay there. The pattern that I picked up in previous years, he would stay there where he summered until the crops were harvested. Um, there was a, a hundred acres um, that sets between two fence rows, and those crops between those in that hundred acres between those two fence rows was always the last crops in the area to be harvested. That the farmer that farms those fields does not live local. He has to travel a ways, and, and that's his last field that he harvests. And by the time he gets there, everything else in that area has been harvested. So what would happen is, is Trump's range, he lived in the crops, Trump did, in the, in the corn and standing soybeans. So as the fields were being harvested, his home range would shrink. And then once it got shrunk down to that 100 acres between them fence rows, that's where he stayed until they were gone. And that's when he moved to his fall winter range. So my plan going into the season was I was just going to hunt that 100 acres, uh, the fence rows around them standing crops, uh, until those crops were harvested. I was just going to pound them day after day. And uh, that's what I did. And, and the first nine hunts that I was out there hunting him, I, I did not see a single deer, not one deer, not a fawn. Holy cow. And I, I, but I just kept pounding away because I knew that uh, if I started jumping around, I was going to be one step behind him. I just stay there, and it's something I hardly, I, I never did. I hadn't done that for years. I mean, decades before, since I had pounded stands as hard as I did those. But, but I, I kind of thought that you know, if if he's not here, how's he ever going to smell that I was here? Smell my ground center? How am I going to spook him? Too so sure. I'll just keep pounding away till he shows up and. Sure enough, on the 10th hunt for him, he showed up, and I was able to get a shot and, and kill him. Wow. And did you know he was in there from the trail cameras the year before or from the trail camera in 17 that year? Well, incidentally, um, I had shot uh, Smokey, the other buck I shot that year, on, the, on October 15th. And a couple days later... Uh, and, you know, I didn't hunt again for a couple of days, three or four days, actually, well, until the quick, 19th. How big, how big was Smokey, real quick, just so everybody knows? Yeah, Smokey was 206 inches. <laughs> and so I, I shot him on the 15th, and he was on my farm. Okay. And uh, so I was dealing with him and, and getting caught up on some chores around home and stuff, and I didn't hunt again until the 19th. 
Well, on the 17th, one the evening of the 17th, I'm taking Smokey to the taxidermist, and my cell phone goes off. I had a picture on one of my Spartan cameras, and, you know, it's it's probably 30 minutes before sunset. Now, I opened up that picture, and I couldn't believe it. There's Trump walking by one of my stands, and this is a situation where there really was no other place to uh, put the camera except close to a stand. So there he is walking by my stand in daylight two days after I just shot Smokey. Mm. Um, so to see him on his feet just confirmed that, you know, he was in that area. Well, the next day, uh, my grandsons were here from Indiana, and, and I spent time with them when I didn't go hunting that day. But then the following day was the 19th, so I slipped in. I could not hunt the stand that he had walked by two days before because the wind wasn't right for that stand. But I had another one about, oh, 150, 200 yards away that I could hunt with that wind. And that's what I did and ended up getting shot and killed me. Wow. Nice, nice work on that. I don't know if we've ever, well, maybe at ATA we personally told you, but nice job once again. That's awesome. Well, thank you. It was, uh, I've got to admit on that one, there was as much luck involved as anything. Now, Smokey was, uh, <laughs> it, it was kind of a no brainer, but yeah. Trump, there was a, there was a big dose of luck involved with that one. If anybody yeah, wants I can't. To. I can't remember back in uh, 2017, right before you killed Smokey, you were on a podcast or maybe maybe a video I saw on YouTube, but you were talking about him and you said, "Oh, you know, anything can happen." But I'm pretty confident about this 200-inch Smokey. I'm just waiting for the right wind, and it, it was just like incredible. A couple of days later, I saw your picture with him. Yeah, yeah, I knew I was going to kill that buck, but. Uh... You know, ironically, I shot Smokey. It was on, a, on October 15th. It was a Sunday evening. And two days later on Tuesday, I did a podcast. And I can't even remember now who I did the podcast with. <laughs> but uh, I, I told them on the podcast uh, that, you know, they asked, you know, what what now? You're allowed two bucks in Illinois. What are you going to do with your second bag? And I said, well, I'm going to be after Trump. But I'll be honest, my odds of even laying eyes on Trump is about 1%, let alone killing him. Just laying eyes on that buck in daylight was my goal for the rest sure. of the season. And I told him, I said, my my odds of that happening are about 1%. And as luck would have it, the very next time I went out, I shot him. Jeez, that's incredible. That's incredible. Well, I'll take luck over skill any day. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, a couple <laughs> couple prayers upstairs, too, I'm sure helped that. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Now, there's something you mentioned earlier, and it kind of relates to this as well. We're trying to relate how you know where to hang your stands um, with some of the habitat set up and setting up properties. Okay, that's one thing, but when you're combing the landscape for a, a mature deer that you want to kill and you have cameras over three miles, you get your picture, you have your intel, you said your experience dictates on where you, you put that stand. Can you dive into that at all um, on, on maybe what happened with Trump and and where you set up there to, to get a shot, which I believe was at like 15 yards or something on that deer? Yeah. Most of the stands I hang, the stand location is dictated by terrain and wind. So the terrain tells me where to put my stand, and the and the wind tells me when to hunt it. So on the on the hunt for Trump, the stand I shot him from was on a a hedgerow, but uh, so I was on that, that narrow hedgerow, 
over, overlooking an ag field, but right where I had my stand, a, a soybean field and a corn field came together. So I'm looking straight out of my stand into the crop, but I'm looking right down the line where soybeans and the corn meet. Oh. And uh, so anytime you have multiple different types of cover coming together, it's always good, but the more different diff- different kinds of terrain and, and such, the better. Or, or veg, types of vegetation. For instance, the, the very best spot on my farm, there's about five different types of terrain that come together. There's there's a uh, conifer or uh, spruce thicket. There's an open ag field. There's a wooded thicket. There's a food plot, and there's a uh, a big field of switchgrass. And all these things kind of corner up together. In this one little spot, it's the best spot on my farm. I, I can kill any buck that shows up here in that one uh, that one spot. No so way. the more wow. different types of terrain or cover that comes together in one location, the better. Yeah, yeah, and people kind of refer to that as edge sometimes too, right? These deer are creatures of edge, and you have all those yep. edges coming together. And in Trump's case, the edges of the two crops too. So he walked out of the corn. Right into the the wood line you were on. Is that how it worked? No, he was. A, it was a dead calm evening. I mean, it was calm. It was so calm. I mean, you you could hear a mouse running through the corn stalks at a hundred yards. <laughs> and, I, and I'm sitting there in that stand overlooking that cornfield where where it met the bean field. And I heard a single rustle of a corn stalk out in that corn, sounding like it was about you know thirty forty yards out. And I knew it was a deer. Um, so I stood up in my stand. I had no idea, but it's the only rustling I heard. So how he ever slipped through the rest of that corn, I have no idea without me hearing him. But he slipped out, and he stepped into the standing soybeans about 30 yards out from me. And then when he came out into that soybeans, he's right on the edge of where they met the corn. Then he turns, and he walks straight at me. Um, and when he gets to the to the wooded edge, then he turns. I knew he would. It's just a matter of which way he turns. So he walked straight at me until he hit the edge of that uh, that hedgerow, and then he turned. And when he did, that's when I shot. You make it. Where'd you hit him? I hit him in the base of the neck, actually. Okay. So uh, I had quite a tracking job the next day, but I can't believe um, you even held your nerves together. I'd have. Yeah, I might have flung one over his back or something at that close a distance <laughs> to that bigger buck. Good night. Yeah, well, I, luck, luck over skill. That's, that's all I can say. <laughs> no, that's awesome. Thanks for diving into all that. I think uh, there are plenty of, of good tidbits information there. I'm going to have to listen to that over again, um, trying to focus here. But yeah, this is, that's a great, great story. I mean, two amazing bucks. I think in that that video on YouTube titled 13, you said it was was – 400 inches of antler between the two deer. What did what did Trump end up scoring? Yeah, Smokey scored 206 and six eighths, and, and Trump scored 193 and three eighths. Wow! So it wow. totals up just a what an eighth over 400 inches. But wow, that's awesome. Well, definitely blessed. That's for sure. All right, well, I want to. Uh switch gears here a little bit and get into the uh, real-world wildlife products. Okay. I've been planting the uh, soybeans for about the last four or five years on my farm, 
in uh, Northeast Ohio. Had a lot of great success with them. Great product. You want to uh, walk us through how you got into the soybean uh, food plot business and the progression that's made since you started it? Yeah, absolutely. It's quite a story, uh, to be honest. Uh, way back probably, uh, I'm just going to guess, 25 years ago, uh, I met a gentleman, Todd Hewing, who's become a really good friend of mine, but uh, um, met Todd, and he was into food plots and, and, and management before it was even popular, even being considered by most people. And he was, at that time, I think he was planting about 60 acres of plots on, on different properties that he owns and his family owns. But uh, him and I got into a little argument about what was better for the late season, corn or soybeans. And, you know, I was a big believer that the carbohydrates offered by the corn were the ticket. And Todd and I argued, and he said, I'll tell you what, you come down and I'll put you in a stand overlooking both standing corn and standing soybeans, and you tell me which the deer prefer. And so uh, that's exactly what happened. I went and, and hunted with Todd, and he put me over a plot that was half standing corn and half standing beans. And that first evening, I probably seen 30 or so deer, and I seen deer walk right through that standing corn without even breaking stride until they got to the soybeans, and they stopped and fed, and you know, by the time I was slipping out of my stand, every one of those 30 or so deer were in the standing soybeans and made a believer out of me. Wow. So, you know, almost instantly the next spring, I'm planting soybeans on my my farm and uh, just getting seed from my neighbors or, or big farmers and seed they had left. And I did that for a few years, and, and there was a, some years it worked out fantastic, you know, the the soybeans would be there in the winter, and the deer would be there just hammering them. But uh, sometimes those soybean pods would shatter open, and, and the soybeans would all be laying in the mud or the snow where the deer couldn't get them. And, and on those years, you know, my hunting suffered because of it. So I started looking for varieties of soybeans, basically, that were more shatter-resistant um, to take care of, of that issue. And, you know, in the process... We, we tested uh, numerous varieties and um, came up with some that, that did seem to not shatter as bad and and ended up, uh, I, we wasn't doing this to start a seed company or anything. It was basically just uh, to have the best plots we have on our own property. So sure. Um, the next thing we know, we've got other people, local people, you know, what soybean do you plant? What soybean do you plant? Get me some. And, one thing led to another, and, and it was those soybeans that, uh, you know, kind of started off real world. Um, I even planted the forage soybeans. There's people saying, oh, you need to plant these forage soybeans. You know, they they get so much taller and they're so much better and this and that. Five years in a row, I planted the forage soybeans right next to the soybeans we were testing uh, for real world. And, and every time, you know, they, they were fine in the summer, but we tested the leaves sent them to an independent test and, or independent lab, and they never were any better than the, the ag beans. In fact, most of the time, the ag beans had a lot better nutrient levels as far as protein and calcium and total digestible nutrients and things like that. So uh, I think the forage soybean has its place. Don't get me wrong. I just don't think it's in the Midwest. And southern states is a different story. But, you know, anyway, that was the, that's kind of the story in a nutshell of how real world got started, and it all started with the soybeans.
Can you go into a little more detail on the shatter resistance for some of our listeners that might not understand that? Yeah, shatter, soybean shatter is basically when that plant dries down, it matures, you know, the the grain is fully developed, the plant matures, and then it dies, it's, it's went through its life cycle. Uh, some soybean varieties, that pod that holds the grain will actually burst open, and it'll it'll drop that grain out of the pod, and you'll just have like an empty pod burst open hanging on your plant, but the grain is no longer there. And the grain is where all the nutrients are for the deer, so you need that, that soybean grain to remain in the pod. Uh, that's why shatter resistance is, is so important. And, you know, as time went by, we, we continue to this day, you know, we, we still plant new soybean varieties every year, you know, looking to improve on what we're already doing. And uh, at one point, we was noticing some soybean varieties that uh, in our test plots, the deer would really hammer the them in the green stage that browse a lot harder than others and so we was sending the tissue samples in to, for testing on those and what we discovered was that some of these higher oil soybeans are a whole lot more palatable to the deer so we shifted our focus there for a few years and we started testing uh, soybeans for not only shatter but for oil content they're, they're a lot more palatable okay. and um uh, so that's where the Generation 2 comes in. Oh, okay. Now, I've got a selfish question here because, like you, I'm getting pounded with rain here in Ohio. Uh-huh. Uh, I got two of my four soybean fields planted with the Gen 2 beans. What is the latest? Where, where am I going to start fencing uh, with the devil here date-wise for trying to get the other two fields planted? Well, I, I think... Uh, you, you can definitely go into July. Um, I wouldn't want to go too much past the July 4th weekend. Um, okay. If you went a week or so past, you, you'd probably be all right. Uh, and the thing of it is, you know, those later planted beans will usually do fine. They just uh, they won't get as tall. They won't produce as much grain. And they'll maybe stay green a little longer in the fall. But there, there should still be some beans there, provided they don't get wiped out. Right. Yeah, I've, I've noticed our uh, we, we've got these later starts to the warmer weather, but it, that also seems to be affecting our uh, frost dates in the fall too. They seem to be getting pushed back a little bit. So, right. I, I'm hopeful that we'll get a few more weeks out of the uh, frost date towards the fall here too. So hopefully that'll help. Well, we haven't had normal, what I would call normal weather for some time now. It seems right. like every year is just some, some other extreme that we haven't seen before. For sure. Now, what other products have you started getting into along with the soybeans once you got established with that? Well, we had a clover blend right out of the gate, and I think, uh, you know, we put so much focus on our soybeans that our clover kind of gets overlooked. Um, I, I would stack our clover up with any clover on the market uh, in, in terms of value, what you're getting for your money, as well as attraction. Uh, we did a lot of testing with different varieties of clover to come up with what's in that blend. Uh, we got a blend for upland game, you know, for uh, folks that are not necessarily deer hunters, but, you know, like pheasants, quail, rabbits, whatever. Um, and then we got some fall planted blends, uh, harvest salad, we got an oat. Um, Deadly Dozen is probably our biggest seller now. If not, it probably will be this year if it hasn't been in the past. Um, it's a combination of 12 different uh, seed species. 
So when you plant that deadly, deadly dozen is actually what Smokey was in. If you watch the video of me shooting Smokey, he was coming out to a deadly dozen plot. Uh, what I like about it is there's something in that blend that the deer like from the time it first germinates clear through until the next spring. At all points of the season, they're going to be hammering it because there's going to be something in that 12-seed mix that, that they're going to be hammering. And uh, it doesn't matter if you're out there the first day of October when season opens or in the rut or in January, the last day of season, they're going to still be hammering that plot as long as it's not, you know, demolished by then. Sure. Uh, because there's something in there that's going to be attractive. They just Each plant has a different window uh, where it's most attractive to the deer. So they're not going to be eating the same thing in January that they were in October. But something else in that blend is, is going to become real attractive. Right. Now, Don, when it's this wet, uh, we haven't had a spring like this, uh, this wet around here at least in a long time, um, what other seed varieties do you recommend that us habitat managers can look at in terms of the, the type of seed for for up here in Michigan, Illinois, or, or even down you know, into Iowa, Missouri for, for you know, if, if beans aren't going to make it, you know, say July is still too wet, you know, what's your backup plan? Well, the, the, the best thing about the spring plot is that if it doesn't work out, you can always salvage it with a fall planted blend. And, uh, yep. you know, deadly, like I said, deadly dozen is my favorite. So I've got one soybean plot on my farm. Uh, it's just in a, in a spot where there's a lot of deer traffic, and I planted it twice this spring, and it, it just gets wiped out by the deer. So at this point, I'm probably just going to give up and come in with some deadly dozen this fall and salvage it that way. Um, yeah, as far as I'm concerned, there's probably not a better fall-planted plant available than Deadly Dozen just because of the reasons I explained. Okay, and can you name off uh, the 12 varieties that are in that Deadly Dozen? It's like a math quiz. Oh, I can probably come up with most of them. There's, uh, there's oats, winter-hardy oats, there's winter wheat, uh, Austrian winter peas, rye grain, uh, turnips, radish, sugar beets, brassica, rape, kale, uh, crimson clover. You know how many that is? Is that 12? 11. <laughs> That's pretty darn good, Don. <laughs> yeah. I was trying to think yeah, of anything you might have, might have missed there. I mean, you, you have everything I... I plant and more, obviously. Yeah, um, for sure. Okay. Well, that's some good advice for uh, guys like me who who food plots are still, you know, a, a mud fest. So I uh, I hope the listeners can learn something from that. Um, now I want to be respectful of your time. We've been going at it for a little while here. What else do you want to talk about tonight on your end? I know we've been drilling you. Do you have anything that you want to cover? Oh, you know, I'm always open to talking about anything. Uh, um, okay. Well, I don't know. You kind of surprised me with that question. I'm usually, I'm usually not left speechless like this. But uh, <laughs> I yeah, have, I just, I, uh, I, I guess, if I want to talk sometimes. about anything. It'd be uh, the blessing that the hunting industry has been to me. You know, I, I just appreciate all the support that uh, guys like you and our customers at Real World. And, my consulting clients and all that, uh, like I said earlier, I'm living the dream, but it wouldn't be possible 
without good folks that support me, and, and it's been a real blessing. And I'd I just like to thank everyone who's been a customer of Real World or a client of mine and uh, just thank them. Oh, that's great. Yeah, and, and like I said, when I when we met you at the show, I mean, you could tell right off the bat, you know, just a real great, genuine person. Um, and it was, you know, very nice to meet you and glad to say I know you. So, I, uh, well, thank you. Yep. Yep. Like I said, I, I'm no, God didn't make me any better than he made anyone else. And, uh, you know, killing big deer is not a very important thing to do in life. And uh, I'm just blessed to chase my passion, but uh, I don't look. That's one thing that always comes up when your name's mentioned, Don, is your humble approach, always giving back. The other thing I like, too, you're always giving credit to the guys that laid the path before all of us, like Barry Wenzel and Roger Rothar. And I think it's important for the new generation to, Remember those guys, hear their names, pick up their books, and uh, just keep that whole thing going, too. Well, absolutely. And I'm glad you, you mentioned those guys because, uh, you know, a lot of what I know today is just something I picked up from others. And, um, you know, I'm just passing it on. And um, A good friend of mine, Alan Foster, he used to write for North American Whitetail in the late 80s and early 90s. Uh, just happens to... Uh, I happened to, to start working with Al when I was like an 18-year-old kid, and he was older than me, and he was doing what I dreamed of, and that was shooting big bucks on a consistent basis. So I was kind of blessed to, to get to know him at an early age, and I've said many times that he's probably saved me 10 years on the learning curve. The things he taught me uh, just made me a much better hunter much quicker than if I had to go out and learn them on my own. And Sure. The Wenzels and, and Roger Roth are back when I was a kid. I would write letters to them because we didn't have email and things like that back in those days. It was handwritten letters. So I remember writing letters to those guys and them guys taking the time to answer my letters. And uh, a big reason of why I've had the success as a deer hunter that I've had is because of people that have come before me. And I don't, I don't ever want to forget that. And, you know, hopefully I can pass some of that on and, and some of the younger hunters can pick up things from me and, who knows, 20, 30 years down the road, uh, maybe they'll be in a position like I am today, and they may mention my name long after I'm gone. That's great. Uh, all about that legacy. That's awesome. Um, I had one more thing I wanted to ask. Just since you were the owner of a nursery, and I, I've asked this question a few times on the podcast. I forgot the last couple episodes, but what is your, your favorite tree? Habitat or hunting related of all time? Favorite tree species? Yeah. One that you guys, uh, one that you planted or hung out of or grew up at the nursery. And you can have a couple, but what, what would you, what's your go to? Favorite tree? Oh, it would probably be. Wow. Well, I, I like swamp white oaks. Okay. Um, that's probably my favorite oak. Uh, they produce acorns that the deer love at a, at a young age. You know, I remember back in the day when sawtooth oaks, which is a non-native, it's an Asian oak, uh, became the rage. And uh, people would talk about, oh, they have acorns for five years and that. Well, I've grown in the nursery swamp white oaks right next to sawtooth. And the swamp white, native swamp whites are producing acorns every bit as fast, if not faster. And the deer love them just as much. So the swamp white is probably my favorite deciduous tree. 
I've done a lot of habitat work using eastern red cedars. I like those real well. I know in some parts of the country they're considered almost a nuisance or a weed, but in my part of the Midwest uh, they make some fantastic bedding cover and screening cover. Um, so that's a tree that I like a lot. Um, persimmons, uh, there's not a lot. I'm kind of on the, the line to go south of me a little ways. And uh, there's quite a few persimmons, but if you go north from where I live, there's not many. So I'm kind of right on that line. And if you can find a persimmon tree in my neck of the woods, the deer are going to be hammering it. So that's uh-huh. one I like real well, too. Chestnuts, um, the Dunstan chestnut is, is kind of the big rage right now. Um, I can tell you I did an article on Dunstan chestnuts a few years ago for North American Whitetail. And in the process of researching that article, I interviewed a guy at Ohio State University and another one at the University of Missouri. Uh, both are chestnut experts, and both guys who know a whole lot more about chestnuts than I do said that they don't believe that the Dunstan chestnut is really a cross between a, the Chinese and American. They said that uh, it, every characteristic it exhibits is the Chinese chestnut. They just think it's a Chinese with some fancy marketing. Huh. And from what I've seen in my nursery and growing on my farm, I can't tell the difference either. So, but a chestnut is a tree that every every critter in the in the woods loves chestnuts. So that's that's a tree I really like as well too. So, I don't know. I named off about four or five there. I didn't narrow it down to one, but I gave you a little bit of reasons to why I liked each one. Yeah, yeah, that's great. That was awesome. awesome. That's that's better than just one. That's interesting you say about the um, the Dunstan being a, maybe just a, the Chinese being a, a marketing version of that. We had a post on Dunstan's on our Facebook page. Uh, if you get bored, Don, check it out. There's all kinds of comments on on my my four out of six fail that I planted last last spring, and, and I mm-hmm. asked a few questions and. There's all kinds of different stuff coming on there. A lot of guys were saying, well, not a lot, but if you were saying go to the go to the Chinese, buy yep. from more of a local nursery. I, I bought mine from the, the Chestnut Hill that were delivered at the local Walmart. Um, that was the raging Facebook post I saw about two years ago, so that's what I did. And, uh-huh. um, so, I mean, it's just check it out. I'd be curious to see what you think about that, and, and uh, yeah, maybe you can... Shed some light on why four out of the six failed. A couple of them look really good, but the rest don't seem to have, have made it. So, Well, I can tell you two things about chestnuts. One, they do not like wet feet. you got to plant them on a dry side. If it's too wet, it'll kill them. Yeah. The other thing is uh, the pH. Um, if the soil's too sweet, you got too much lime, uh, they don't like that at all either. They'll get uh, chlorosis. The leaves will turn yellow, and the tree will usually die. So uh, low pH and dry site. Those are two keys for growing chestnuts. Well, the uh, the low pH is uh, I got that covered. The uh, the dry yeah. site this year, yeah, that that sounds like it could have been could have been the issue if they didn't come out of the, the dormancy. Or I mean, they look good in the fall, and then the spring they're just not there. And like I said, my area is still just a mud plot, so mm-hmm. that could be it. That could be it. Good chance. Okay. Well, cool, Don. Um, Thank you so much for coming on. I just want to hit uh, how everyone can find you. If you want to list off your website where people can find you and maybe some of the services and seminars coming up that uh, people can attend. 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, my personal website is HigginsOutdoors.com. You'll find information on my consulting. Um, I'm also a real estate agent in the state of Illinois. Uh, one new thing that I just started this past spring was holding them what I call a whitetail master course uh, on my home farm. And it's kind of a one-day class where we uh, – it's about half in the classroom and half in the field where we go – I'll show uh, slides and video footage that I've taken from actual tree stands and mature bucks on my property. And then we'll go look at those exact stands, and uh, I'll explain why my stand's there and how I played the wind and how the buck was using the wind. And, and uh, you know, it's, for example, where I shot Smokey, you can go right up in the blind where I shot Smokey and, and see where that happened. But, but not only that, several other Boone and Crockett-class bucks, uh, that information is on HigginsOutdoors.com. And then, RealWorldWildlifeProducts.com has all our seed blends, uh, maximizer mineral information on on that product, and uh, our Expect Healthy Deer technology. Um, RealWorldWildlifeProducts.com, and you know anyone that's that's got questions or whatever, you know I try to answer every email that comes my way. I'm sure a few might slip through the cracks. Uh, if that happens to you and you're listening, send it again because. Uh, you know, I try to answer all. I appreciate anyone uh, that, that looks to me for, for information. So uh, if you sent me something I didn't respond, send it again. But if you never have and want to, feel free to, to do so. That's great. That's great. Don, thank you very much for coming on. That was an excellent podcast. Um, I just want to say thank you. It's full of information, and we really appreciate your time here at the Habitat Podcast. So. Thanks again, man. Yeah. Wow, guys. I say it a lot, but wow. What another great episode here at the Habitat Podcast. Brian, my man, how you feeling? What would you think? I know we're getting a pretty good log of uh, hunting information that I'm going to have to do a lot of earmarking for October. <laughs> Go back and listen to these guys because it's just, just been some incredible information rolling in and Thanks again to Don. Just just a great guy. He's so generous with his time and his information and just uh, everything he could offer. And uh, he really went into detail, and I, th- I think our listeners are going to get a lot out of this. I know I did. Yeah, me, me too. I mean, like I always say, it probably gets old. I have a, literally a full page of notes here. Um, and when you're running a podcast, you're not always as, I don't know, maybe listening the best you should be when you're focusing on what's next and everything else. So it's always fun for me to listen to these, you know, a second and third time afterwards. And this one is going to be epic. I mean, Don, thank you so much for coming on, first of all. And then, you know, just seems like a great guy, and he is a great guy. We met him. But what a hunter and what a habitat manager. I mean, I know it's still only June, but almost July, but all I can think about is, you know, the reason we're doing all this is for, for hunting season. So it's, I think we're going to get more and more into the hunting side of things, you know, with Mike Perry on last week and and Don this week. And then uh, we got a, you know, special episode number 50 guest coming up next week, which is another number 50. Awesome episode then. Yeah, you believe we're at 50? I mean, hold on. Rolling. Uh, yeah, it's amazing. So. Yeah, I want to thank the listeners also for coming on once again. 
everybody who leaves us a five-star review on the podcast app on your iPhone or, or Stitcher or Podbean, wherever you guys go, thank you so much for doing that. Uh, we're going to be coming out with uh, some merchandise in the future, so keep your eyes peeled for that, some apparel. And, uh, you know, if you want to hear more of our episodes, uh, Brian's been hammering the YouTube page with good content. I've been putting a few up there. I'm putting our episodes up there so you can listen to them there. Facebook and Instagram are always on fire every day. Um, and then, you know, HabitatPodcast.com, the website. You can see it all there, read all the notes, and uh, catch up on anything that you may have not heard. So, once again, thank you to the listeners for coming on. I want to thank our sponsors before we wrap this up. Michigan Whitetail Pursuit, Killer Food Plots, The Habitat Hook, Packer Max Cult of Packers, and Dip That Hydrographics. Thank you all for supporting the podcast. We really uh, appreciate your support and can't do it without you. So, Brian, anything else on your end before we shut this down? Anybody out there that's still doing a rain dance, uh, <laughs> you can stop now. We got enough. At least in the north, I know. I know some of the guys uh, are suffering a little bit down south and haven't had any rain, but yes, we've had plenty of it. Yes, that's true. And probably start putting tarps over the food plots, catching it, putting it in barrels, and shipping it south. I mean, yeah, it's, it is soaking. But no, you're right. Stop with the rain dances. So thank you for that. Once again, everybody, thanks for tuning in as we become better habitat managers. We will see you next time, episode 50. by Academy Sports and Outdoors every Monday night from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment. A life that has the stories to back it. A life to be proud of. It's a Winchester life. Yeah, baby. Six, eight, Western. Mule there, baby, right there. Tune in every Tuesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV.